0: Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show.
1: John, welcome to the War Room. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, so the new book, which won't be out until May second, I believe, in the U.S., is called "To the End of the Earth: The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan in 1945." And this is book three, correct? In the tr- in the trilogy.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's uh, the the final volume of a trilogy I've written about the army in the Pacific uh, Asia theater in World War II.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that for a second just in general why the trilogy is there certain aspects you want to cover obviously there's a ton of history there but why the trilogy
1: yeah i mean you're right there was just so much to cover actually it originally was going to be two volumes but there's just too much so the funny thing is um i had written the the first volume the one called uh, fire and fortitude u.s army in the pacific war 1941 to 43 and then I had planned to, to write a second volume that was going to be 44, or 45. Well, when I turned in the manuscript, of course, it was enormous and just really <laughs> too big a gulp for, for one book. So uh, my my editor, uh, Brent Howard, who I've worked with on many projects, and he's just amazing on so many levels. Um, he approached me and said, why, why don't we break this up into two more volumes? And uh, so the obvious breaking point then was 1944. And then, of course, this concluding volume, 1945. So the, the second volume is called Island Infernos, and it covers 1944. And then this one takes us from the uh, the beginning of the invasion of Luzon all the way through the end of the war. And then, of course, we go and we go into the, the sort of legacies of the war, too.
0: Okay. And so one of the things when I was looking through the advanced copy I was fortunate enough to get, and I never had reconciled this. This shows you how stupid I am. Um, you, you talk about, so you, we have... General, general macarthur right who's a name that everyone knows um i've said on the show before i watch the show the pacific every year and when i think about <laughs> the pacific theater i think about the marines and i've always known that he was an army guy and i've never reconciled i've never reconciled that that discrepancy to uh through your book and i was like yeah i'm just an idiot <laughs> so <do laughs> mo- are most people like me they don't realize that how many how much larger the Army's presence was there than the Marines? Or is this, am I the only person in the world to not
1: make that connection yet? Oh, well, you're definitely not the only person in the world. You're not an idiot. Actually, your your perception is sort of our popular memory. And that, that's why I did this. Because I, I think that, um, you know, as much as is known about the, the American war against Japan, uh, I think there's a kind of total sort of blind spot for the massive role that the, the U.S. Army actually played in the war. And and so, yeah, MacArthur sort of sucks the oxygen out of the room, um, you know, and, and we forget that he had, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers under his command. Um, and the other thing, too, MacArthur did not control all Army troops in, in theater. Um, you know, some of them were under the command of uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz, because, of course, it's such a vast theater that, that they couldn't really put it under one person plus the army and the navy wouldn't agree to serve under each other under one whole unified command so it's a kind of uneasy compromise and the other thing too you've got army forces deployed in asia uh you know that, that are uh, serving in china serving in burma and in india um, all of that so the point i make is that um you know 1.8 million american ground soldiers served in the war against japan that's the third largest army this country has ever sent overseas to fight a war. So actually, there's really no disrespect to the Marines, quite the contrary. Uh, but but the Army did the vast majority of the fighting, uh, really the plurality of the dying in the war against Japan. Uh, there just weren't many Marines. There were six Marine divisions. There were almost four times that many Army divisions. Plus, the Army had the responsibility for the sort of logistical side of the war, too, which obviously is a is a major component of it
0: yeah and so i know you have um i've got eugene sledges um with the old breed um and then the other guy helmet for my pillow i can't remember uh oh him. robert Lecky. yeah, yeah lucky like i got those books on my shelf um is there popular army books from that firsthand accounts from that period that you might throw out there that people could read because that's those are the works that I'm familiar with, but I'm obviously not a historian. So, who? So, people want, want to dig into the army side beyond your book, like the first-hand accounts. Where might they go?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is sort of the. Those are the classic accounts, and I agree. I mean, Sledge, Lecky just can't be beat, and and that's one of the things that the Marines have been very good at is shaping the narrative, um, and and preserving the history and those kind of remarkable accounts. My single favorite army soldier account um is by francis catanzaro and it's called with the 41st division and so um francis francis catanzaro was a guy who happened to live here locally where i live in st louis whom i met by chance and you know it turned out he was working on a manuscript and and as it turned out then i ended up writing the foreword for it and all and it's really good because um it's just it's sort of like Sledge and Leckie, this kind of straightforward account of a guy who's really doing most of the fighting, you know, who's, who has a job that's doing most of the fighting. Uh, so he serves on New Guinea. He serves in the Philippines. Um, he serves in the, in the fighting uh, on an island called Biak. Again, these are not famous parts of World War II, uh, but they're really the sort of staples of the Pacific War. Um, in An example I'd give you, the, the Marines carried out 15 amphibious invasions in the course of the whole war. Uh, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger's Eighth Army alone carried out 35 in the Philippines in the spring of 1945. And, and some of them were ones that Catanzaro was a part of. So um, that is, to me, sort of the quintessential um, Army infantryman account of the war. And the other thing, too, I should mention, you know, in counting the, the Army's role, I'm, I'm not even uh, uh, including the Army Air Forces, which the Air Force was part of the Army back then. So that's a completely separate thing. This is just Army ground forces and service forces and Zero to me is sort of the microcosm of the whole thing
0: okay so we want to get up to the the third book but maybe walk us through from the army's perspective what's been happening obviously we have Pearl Harbor everyone knows about that we know about <laughs> battles like Guadalcanal and some of these other islands like Peleliu maybe that you've heard of but kind of give us the, the high points of what's happened in the war and where we're launching into in 1945
1: yeah so really, the nexus of the whole Pacific War from an American perspective is the Philippines. Um We fight two major campaigns there you know the debacle in nineteen forty one and forty two that leads to um you know twenty one thousand plus Americans being captured, most of whom were were soldiers uh and so MacArthur's great crusade, as he really would have thought of it, was to come back to the Philippines and liberate the Philippines now, in order to do that, you had to basically secure enough of the northern coast of New Guinea. That takes the better part of two plus years. It's it's terribly unglamorous, but um, I would I would point out one of the things I would point out in the trilogy is that um, this this fighting on the northern coast of New Guinea, particularly in Papua New Guinea in 1942 and early 1943, is, is basically uh, linked with Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal is much more famous, uh, but they are basically two chapters of the same book in the sense that, especially from a Japanese perspective um they get stretched very thin trying to fight in both places and this is one of the reasons why they lose when that happens it gives momentum of course to the american push up the solomons which army soldiers are a big part of that too in places like new georgia bougainville and the like um and then of course the push across new guinea and all the way to the philippines so uh, most of the pacific war is in is, is sort of fought or or sort of um sort of movement in these terrifically unglamorous, horrible places of jungle and heat and insects and no infrastructure. That's kind of the challenge for the U.S. Armed Forces is how to create infrastructure, how to create logistical nodes. Uh, And that's really the business of the Army and the Navy primarily.
0: One of the things that I've read um, people argue over is some of these battles as we go through uh, the war with Japan, that some of the islands that we took weren't really necessary. Um, And there's debates over that. How much of that do you buy into not buy into because um, there is also the reality of people being stuck in the time and not being able to, you know, all they can see is what they can see. And that's that's a real problem. So looking back now, when you look at some of these battles that were really tough, really, really slogs,
1: uh, generally speaking, did they make the right decisions or were there some blunders? I to think they did make the right decisions. And and it was a tough call because there's, of course, thousands of islands out there in the Pacific, many of which had a Japanese military presence. And uh, so it's always a tough call as to where you should go and where you should not go. Um, And Nimitz and MacArthur constantly have to deal with that. And, of course, their corps commanders and and their army commanders and and whatnot. Um, I think the only time we would point to where clearly uh, they, they should not have gone was the famous Battle of Peleliu. Um, which, like like a number of battles, is associated in our popular memory primarily with the Marines, but was actually a Marine and Army battle, like Guadalcanal, actually. And um, Palaloo, of course, didn't need to be fought. The reason the Americans land there is a kind of sad sort of comedy of errors in the sense that, um, that uh, Admiral Halsey, had, had realized that there, that it probably wasn't worth it, that you could still get to the Philippines without controlling Peleliu, and you wouldn't have too much of a problem with Japanese air. Um, the time he realizes this is a time when MacArthur happens to be aboard ship uh, and out of radio communication for security purposes. Uh, and so what might have been MacArthur's call, and probably inclined maybe to, to scrub the invasion, Instead devolves onto Nimitz and he doesn't feel he ought to step on MacArthur's toes and all these other reasons. Nimitz never really spoke about the decision that much the rest of his life. But so we can only kind of divine what must have been going on. It's quite difficult, but uh, Caldo, of course, is a nightmare and very costly to, to both sides. And unfortunately, you know, the airfield that's taken there is not really going to play much of a role in the Pacific War. Uh, they're that point forward as you go to the Philippines. Also, I would point out another lesser known battle next door to Peleliu called Angar, uh, fought by elements of the 81st Infantry Division. I I would argue that that, that probably wasn't necessary either, just as a kind of an adjunct to, to Peleliu. Yeah, yeah. To unpack these
0: islands. That's one thing that, that I've wondered about as um, you, you watch these battles and you hear about them. Is it mainly just the airfield? Because obviously the ground troops on an island aren't a threat to anybody else so is it is they couldn't just bomb the airfields into oblivion i guess or they could repair them too fast why couldn't you just why couldn't that that method of just an aerial attack take out these airfields
1: Well, in some cases it did, you know, like with uh, the the, uh, with Rabaul, the the major Japanese base, uh, you know, that's in the South Pacific, they had thought initially the Allies did that they were going to have to go and invade Rabaul and take it over. And that would have been a major battle because that that was a a serious uh, Japanese military base. Um, so this does happen. There's all place, all sorts of places. Truck is another one that gets sort of bypassed and pounded. But eventually, you got to have your own bases too, uh, and you've got to have your own, you know, harbors and all the rest of the kind of things you need as you advance toward Japan. Um, so again, you know, that's the problem. Which ones do you do you grab and which ones do you not? Um, so th- th- one of the things that it's almost a joke uh, between my students and me in my World War II class. You know when the, when the question comes up why did they invade this island the answer is almost always they wanted an airfield you know and and so that becomes the important thing of projecting air power in, in in as many directions as you can as far as you can because of course aircraft could be deadly to ships and you needed all the air cover for your ground operations and for your logistics for movement and uh, evacuation of wounded you know it was um, in in that sense an airman's war, but in the end, nothing was going to happen until you secured the key ground. And, and that's, again, sort of where the Army comes in with some of the larger formations. Um, you know, so they, they, and that's, that's part of this, this war that I think is a little bit overlooked in, in our retrospective memory is the, the role of aviation engineers. Uh, so, you know, combat troops go in and they may take a, an island. We got to develop. Maybe we're going to repair a Japanese airfield we've captured or just build one out of whole cloth it's it's army aviation engineers and navy construction battalions are going to do a lot of the really heavy lifting on that and that is i think absolutely key to the the allied victory in the pacific war
0: Mm. what was it like obviously combat's one thing but just waking up going to the bathroom getting chow what was it like for the infantry
1: members on these islands it was almost uniformly awful. Um, you know, in the European theater was a meat grinder, and it was terrible. But at least you did have something of that infrastructure of so-called civilization. There were towns. There were, um, you know, there was shelter. There were sometimes, you know, places that weren't destroyed where you could find restaurants, or there were civilians to interact with on a, on a who who were culturally similar to the whites. I guess you could say who were um, there. There were places to get liquor. Uh, there were things to loot. There was infrastructure to move stuff around. Uh, in the Pacific, that wasn't always the case. Now, another sort of overlooked aspect of the Pacific is the the experience of indigenous peoples, uh, because most of these islands were populated, not heavily, but they were populated, and so you were dealing with civil affairs to some extent, but you don't have much infrastructure you don't have many places to to um to you know to rest and and enjoy yourself or to to go grab a beer or something like that and so you got to kind of make your own fun um the other thing too you know, these are tough places to exist on a health scale on a health plane um because you know like in, in new guinea for instance in 1943 um MacArthur's command has about 4 to 5 guys down with malaria for every one who's been hit in combat against the Japanese. I mean that's a staggering number. Um so this is an enormous challenge for the the medical authorities and you know for the for that side of the war too. And it's one of the reasons why I describe the Pacific War as really to some extent an interspecies war. You're fighting the insects too. And that is, you know, much much more difficult in the Pacific uh than it is in Europe and it's more difficult in the Pacific than it is in Asia too, which has its own challenges, obviously, but but also has a little bit more development, especially in China, where you may be operating as a U.S. Uh, you know ground crewman or something like that. Uh, so that's partially going to lead to some morale problems.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, What? One, oh, sorry. Let's I say I think that's one of the problems when you think about Band of Brothers versus the Pacific is Band of Brothers. You kind of follow the journey of these people from A to Z, and you kind of you kind of grow with them. And you kind of go up and down with them. In Pacific, it's 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 here to here to here. It's following three different stories. And so you do see some of the the unbelievable things they had to endure, you know, trying to be re- recaptured. But I think it is harder for the audience to really appreciate the despair that probably some of them, when you read Sledge's book or, you know, Leckie's book, like the, some of the stuff they talk about in that book, is like the show, because it hops around, you kind of miss just what they probably were going through. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I've often said, I don't want to be in Bastogne, but I don't know if I could survive the the, the islands because it looks, and the accounts are brutal and like they couldn't bury the bodies on some of these islands and stuff. And so it's crazy.
1: It really is. And it, you know, thinking of Band of Brothers, I mean, of course it's the most of how we want to remember the war. Um, I mean, of course it's, it's, you know, a tough combat account and all that it's gritty and it's brutal and all that. And that's one of the things that's really strong about that series. But of course, this is, it 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 sort of presents everything in its best light in the sense that this is an elite combat unit fighting episodic warfare. Uh, You know, you're in Normandy, and then you're back in England refitting for a while, and then you're in Market Garden, and then you're out the line, and then you're in the Bulge, and then kind of not quite the war over, but the worst of it is over, whereas, you know, if you're a Marine or a soldier in the Pacific, I mean, you are slogging it out in these terrible campaigns, one after the other. And I'd point out, too, if you were a soldier in the European theater in a typical infantry or armored unit, you know, you could be on the line for 100 straight days or something if you survive that long, you, you wouldn't have that as a paratrooper. So on that level, Band of Brothers is, is more pleasant in a way, but also on the level of like you're fighting in the European theater, liberating people taking down Nazis, eventually helping liberate a, a labor camp toward the end of the war, all of the, it's all in its best light. Um, you know, you don't see the, the segregation of the, the, on the American side, that sort of hardcore racism that's still there. You don't see that. You don't really see it in the Pacific miniseries either, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, so when you look at like the army's experience in the Pacific, it takes you into all those sort of uncomfortable worlds of this, the war against the insects, the war against the the, the conditions, uh, the, the sort of uh, sort of segregation that's that's there. If you happen to be uh, part of a port company, an African American port company, unloading ships in New Guinea somewhere, you know, getting in the pouring rain and the heat and no recreation, and so it's just, I think more enjoyable <laughs> to kind of look back and and think of it through the and, and you really do kind of get the progression of the characters and band of brothers you know better than you can in the in the pacific miniseries i think and, and one
0: thing we haven't touched on um is you, you mentioned the thing things that they're battling they're also battling the pacific it seems to preserve their own humanity uh, when you hear some of the stories of you know how they would come across fallen american soldiers and what had happened to them and the the desire to retaliate a certain way so they're also battling with their own humanity as well.
1: No, absolutely. And I I think no one portrays that better than sledge um in his, in his, what is in my opinion probably the the greatest war memoir ever written with the old breed and portrayed in the mini series. Uh you know, the the example of looting you know an enemy uh soldier a, a dead Japanese soldier Uh, sort of grave robbing picking things off the body for souvenirs like gold teeth and things like that that can really kind of take away your humanity on some levels Uh, and sledge kind of explores that heart of darkness Um, and i think that many you know ground troops no matter where you serve in the pacific war could probably relate to that uh, because it was a pretty ruthless environment and and both sides tended to have a kind of you know kill or be killed Kind of approach to to combat and i think that's another reason why this is a little bit tougher topic to delve into because in the european theater there were at least some level of rules to the war for lack of a better way to mm-hmm. put it um pacific not as much and that's really what's characterized most all of our wars ever since the way we have tended, we've we tended to fight against enemies that don't respect the rules of war as, as we as americans would like to to outline them and then we have to kind of decide how do we deal with this? And what are our moral, um, you know, moral contradictions? And and those are tough things to come to terms with. Someone like MacArthur, obviously
0: we're sitting here, we've read accounts, you're a historian, you read all these accounts. He's (laughs) hearing reports, obviously. How real is what we're talking about for him? Obviously it's more real for him than us, but but how far removed is he? Can he really feel Mm. the pain of his soldiers going through this stuff?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's it's really interesting because the the answer is depends what time we're we're dealing with him. Um, if he's a corregidor in 1942, I mean he's in a combat zone and and that's getting pounded all the time. He's behaving with incredible valor. Uh, he loses 25 pounds, so he's not eating well. Um, he goes back to Australia though once they get him out of the Philippines and and he's fairly remote maybe from combat for about the next year or so most notably and infamously during the Battle of Buna uh, you know towards the end of 1942 when he's at Port Moresby and it's an entirely different world up there at Buna and he knows very little about what's happening. Um, later in the war though you're gonna like the invasion of Los Negros in February 1944 he he goes in about two to three hours after the initial assault troops. Um, So, you know, he's right there, not necessarily, you know, in major danger, but certainly understands what they're up against. Um, You see the same kind of thing at Hollandia in April. Um, You see the same thing a little bit at Leyte. I mean, his headquarters on Leyte uh, in October, November, December 1945 is getting air rated all the time. And then uh, on the and during Luzon, the Battle of Luzon, uh, January, you know, February, March, 1945, he's taking crazy chances um, going to the front, and especially during the Battle of Manila. And so MacArthur absolutely never lacked for courage, though sometimes he was distant from the battlefield. But perhaps as appropriate as a theater commander, maybe he ought to be. I, I think that many of those around him felt that he probably took too many chances in the course of the war. And, and I, I don't know, know that I would disagree with them. You say
0: in the book, or maybe you quote someone that says that no, none of his counterparts really knew him. They only knew fragments of him. Why was that?
1: Very enigmatic man. You know, he's just, uh, he's so complex on many levels. Um, he would show different faces at different times to different people, I guess. Um We can assume that that probably his wife, Jean, knew him pretty well, and they they were really true soulmates, Um, but we don't necessarily know a lot about the ins and outs of their relationship. They were private people, and it's very understandable. Um, So, like, to his staff and his commanders, he would, you know, he would sometimes let them in. They would would eat together. The staff would, especially by the time they get to the, the Philippines, like in Luzon and whatnot. Um, so they, they had a good sense of MacArthur's opinions, his likes and dislikes, and all that. But there was a personal side in which he was always sort of aloof. Uh, and, and, I, and if that's true with, with say uh, you know Dick Sutherland, his chief of staff, or or Eichelberger uh, and Kruger, his two army commanders, you can imagine that's true with an average private too. On the other hand, and this, this is what's so interesting about the guy, um, you know, towards the, the the latter part of the Leyte campaign. Uh and this is where this is where the second volume of my trilogy ends. Um, the book called Island Infernos. Two um airborne privates, two paratroopers from the 11th Airborne Division, uh wander into his headquarters one day, wanting to see him and wondering, you know, why doesn't your headquarters talk more about what we're doing, about our unit and all the great things we've done here? And he, he kind of spends an afternoon, part of an afternoon with them, talking it over and, and explaining. And and it's so it's he's he's just I think he's really interesting as an historian uh, because there's so many complexities to the man there's times he'll infuriate you and there's other times where <laughs> where you'll say wow you know he's 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 honorable on some levels too uh, how much
0: obviously when you're in charge of this many men this sort of an operation you're moving the pieces but there's tons of decisions that are being made the time. but so how much credit do you give macarthur obviously he's 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 a top dog in some sense but but You know, there's practical realities of stuff on the ground that happens that he never hears about. So how much credit
1: do you give him? It depends credit for what. I mean, um, in my opinion, I think that Eichelberger is the guy who makes him look good throughout some of the war um, when he's willing to use him. But the the reason he's not going to use him all the time is he doesn't want to share that credit. He doesn't, I mean, (laughs) I have it in my mind that, uh, you know, MacArthur would be, you know, almost living in fear that someone like me had come along 70 or 80 years later and want to realize, oh my gosh, you know, Eichelberger or someone else deserves a lot of credit for this. Um, I think Kruger does too. Um, So MacArthur just wasn't the kind of person who ever wanted to share the stage with anybody. So I guess then it's the historian's task to kind of sort through that. So I would credit him certainly with... uh, making a very difficult decision in the invasion of Los Negros. Uh, I would credit him with having the right idea in um, the Battle of Luzon about the incredible importance of, of, of uh, getting Manila and getting Clark Field because of the, the airfield complex at Clark Field. I think MacArthur understood the strategic level of the dimension of the campaign better than almost anybody else. Um, and I think he deserved credit as maybe a, a kind of rallying point for many Americans, you know, throughout the war, during some of the the tougher times earlier in the war. But it it came at the cost of this terrible cult of personality, which was really built on something of a house of cards and had a sort of political dimension to it as well, because he, Sub Rosa runs for president in 1944 while on active duty is in command of a theater. And, you know, I I, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I I don't think that's okay. I mean, I, I think that's very troubling. So he wants a lot of credit, he deserves some, but maybe not as much as he he might have gotten for himself.
0: Yeah, in the book you touch on the presidential run in nineteen forty four, and I thought about that some. But for me, the the, the harder thing, perhaps, and maybe this get your opinion is when they land and he has this staged photo session ready for him. <laughs> for me, that's that's very tough because if you're a commander and you're in charge of people's lives, there's a sense in which you know I have a t- I've read some of uh, I mentioned this on a show the day uh reading through some of Lee's biographies and hearing how he kind of probably let more people die than he had to when it was it was over he could have he could have surrendered but it's like you know Lee you're probably not going to get killed barring a huge you know slaughter you're probably okay mm-hmm. but this little private here who's just trying to follow your order or going to get shot or whatever on, you know him you could have stopped for so that's to me where it really becomes tough to um figure out how to evaluate these commanders is when they do stuff like
1: that that's always the dilemma a commander is uh you know the mission versus their people and and uh which will come first at any given time
0: well well, but in this case he 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 invades and then he has the photo shoot second
1: or the island um you know he walks yeah. in the water um right and it's like and somewhat somewhat some joked that he thought he was walking on the water but um uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here's what happens with that um in, at the invasion of Leyte in October 1944, it uh, gets a great photo op coming ashore. Not too long after the initial landings, and and the landings were uh, opposed in some parts of the coast. You know, you got a four division landing, so it's a it's a massive invasion. More. Uh, U.S. amphibious uh, combat troops are going to land at Leyte than they did at Normandy on D-Day, you know. So there's, but there's places that are reasonably safe. Um, And so he comes ashore and it just so happens that the the photo is taken, you know, the the famous one of him in the water. And of course it's memorialized now uh, on on Leyte with statues of, of him and his staff coming ashore. Well, this was just spontaneous then, but it was such, you know, PR gold That he decides to replicate it on Luzon with the multiple stagings. Um, Now that's later, of course, in January 1945. But that that really does give you a window into the man. Uh, You you, you, like, for instance, you step back. Can you imagine Dwight Eisenhower doing that? Um, No, I mean that's so. This tells you something right there about Douglas MacArthur and his priorities, I guess.
0: Yeah, and so I guess for me, when I'm reading that, I go, okay, if you're willing to set up the photo op. Are you sending in extra troops? Are you doing things like how, you know, obviously you they can say this is an important spot to take. Okay. But are you willing to put people's lives at risk so you can get the photo op? And to me, that's, it's, I don't know how you separate the two. And so that's where the criticism comes from, from my perspective, at least.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and if, and if even one person's life is risked for that um, I don't think it's necessarily worth that. Um, now, of course, image ma- matters in modern warfare to modern war with mass media and and all that uh but no i I think it's probably a bad bargain and i certainly don't want to be the soldier getting my life risked so that he can have his photo op you can imagine (laughs) the resentment so yeah some of these guys came out of his uh his theater really disliking him some bought into the legend it it really just kind of you know depending on who you were where and when
0: yeah let's talk a little a little bit about what's going on for the Japanese perspective in 1945. When do you think they know it's over? Um, you talk in the book about, I can't remember which the, the general was, and he wrote his wife, you know, they'd been surrounded, and it might be a few months before he talks to her. And so there's <laughs> there's at least some acknowledgement, it feels like, that you were able to pick up it. Some people understood that it's, it's pretty bleak, but Julie but speaking as a whole, was it the bombing of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, or... Had they their, their backs sort already of been broken before then?
1: Well, I think many in, in like the Imperial General Headquarters level in Tokyo, so the highest sort of policymakers on the military side, know that Japan is probably going to lose the war. I think they know that certainly by the early months of 1944, but really especially by the middle of the year, once the Marianas campaign happens, which is terrifically important. You know, when the Americans capture uh, Saipan, Guam, Tinian it means now they can bomb the Japanese home islands, and that's definitely a game changer in World War II. Uh, So I think a number of the the high-level Japanese officers are beginning to understand that, but it it depends what we mean by losing the war. Um, Losing the war, does it mean getting completely conquered by the Americans and occupied and no more empire and no more emperor, or does it mean... Having to, to come to some sort of peace agreement that, that puts you in a you know weaker spot than you were in 1941 when you started the war, uh, but you still have the emperor in power and the same government in power, or exactly what. So what the Japanese are fighting for in 1945 is to to affect that quotient, that, that kind of negotiation, which inevitably will be coming, the best they can, you know, and they've had a completely new government take power in the wake of the the Saipan disaster. But what I the point that I make in the in the trilogy is. Yeah, you've got a new government in power, but there's nobody with the levers of power who, at that point, is willing to give enough in any negotiation in order to to uh, to be realistic in terms of creating some sort of peace agreement, especially with the Allied policy of unconditional surrender. Uh, so, how does all that get mediated? So, if I but if I'm a Japanese soldier. Fighting on Luzon, uh, or I'm fighting uh, elsewhere in the Philippines, or I'm fighting on Okinawa, 1945, or something. I don't necessarily know that, and and I and, and my my government has not really been honest with me in the course of the war. My commanders haven't either. I don't necessarily appreciate the the the, the really terrible situation Japan's in, uh, you know, and and that I'm kind of a sacrificial lamb too. But what I'm fighting for, eventually, if I have realized this is to to basically um afford some sort of settlement agreement short of the americans conquering the japanese home islands themselves and your family back home so that's a lot to fight for still
0: Mm -hmm. And, and so is that why we see stuff like the kamikazes um What's the little submarines they used to launch with the one person in there? The, is it the midget submarines or what were they Yeah. Called? They're
1: often called the midget submarines. Yeah. And then they yeah. used them at Pearl Harbor. So they're yeah. all throughout the war. Okay. Those were all throughout the war. That wasn't a later development. But they, yeah. So the, the later development is that they start to use, especially like boats, explosive laden boats, uh, you know, as like, like, you know, submarine, or excuse me, suicide rammers against uh, allied surface vessels. Um, that doesn't really do much damage, but the kamikazes infamously do. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing to remember is Japan, uh, the soil of Japan had never really been trod by an invader. And so, I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I'm Japanese, that's terrifically important to me, and I want to make sure it never happens. And so the Japanese viewed Iwo Jima and Okinawa as their home soil. And I think that's one of the reasons why the battles there were so ferocious. Also, the ob- especially in the case of Okinawa, the obvious importance of the place as a stepping stone for the invasion of uh, Japan itself. You know, so there's, there, yeah, I mean, I, I do think um, that plays into it, but also the kind of self sacrifice that this kind of this military dominated government, which has been in play now for about 10 years or so, if not more in terms of influence, um, has created a mindset among many of the Japanese public. Uh, that their lives individually don't matter much and that uh, that they have an obligation, especially young men, to, to sacrifice themselves in battle for the larger nation. And this became the kind of peer pressure even among families too.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned Iwo Jima, Okinawa, probably the two most famous battles of 45, maybe of, maybe of all the Pacific theater other than Midway. Yeah,
1: right. Um, Arguably, yeah. Maybe the whole war, who knows.
0: What did going into those battles u.s intelligence think was going to happen what did they get right what did they get wrong
1: um u.s intelligence is terrifically over optimistic about both those battles um Mm -hmm. they expect a a something in the order of about a you know seven to 14 day campaign on iwo jima which of course you know it's much worse than that much bloodier Uh, on okinawa I I am absolutely amazed. um, Looking at uh, at U.S. intel from uh, from before that battle, that they fully expect the Japanese are going to defend right at the waterline and try and repulse the invasion. You know, right on the beaches, when the Japanese had clearly reoriented, really from Biak on, but especially from Peleliu onward, um, and you know, in the Philippines, they hadn't necessarily operated that way, uh, and and of course. You know, the the Americans controlled the air and the sea for the most part, kamikazes notwithstanding. And so I I don't know why they expected that. They also uh, very much underestimated the size of the Japanese garrison on uh, on Okinawa by about a one third measure. Uh, And they don't quite appreciate just how heavily dug in the Japanese were along the Shuri line, like the southern part of Okinawa. That was great defensible ground with caves and, and you know, hilltops and ravines and sharp ridges, uh, most famously Hacksaw Ridge, of course, all that, you know, but you also saw a misappreciation of the Japanese strength in the Philippines, too. Uh, MacArthur really underestimates the Japanese by about a one-third measure there, too, on Luzon. So, it was, of course, it's easy for us to come along and say, why didn't they know more and better? The answer to that question is usually because you don't have much human intel. I mean, it's not like when you're invading France and you've got the French resistance there to be feeding you all kinds of great info on the German order of battle and you have a good sense of how many Germans are where. You don't have that at Iwo Jima. You don't have that um, on on Okinawa. You've got that to some extent with guerrilla organizations in the Philippines, and even then it's tough. Um, So uh, you you see sometimes in the Pacific War, the Americans have great intel, like at Hollandia. Um, like to some extent at Los Negros or, or maybe, even, maybe even at Guadalcanal at times. you got other times when you're just like, wow, they really had no idea what they were getting into. So where is MacArthur? What, what, what conquest is he
0: trying to take down when these two major campaigns are going on?
1: Yeah, so MacArthur's deeply enmeshed in the Philippines in, the, in 1945, and this is to him what the war is all about. Mm-hmm. really. I mean, it's, it's about liberating the Philippines and sort of redeeming Americans in the archipelago, um, almost as every bit as much as it is about going to Japan and defeating the Japanese in the home islands. Um, so MacArthur's forces invade at Luzon in a massive four-division invasion on January 9th, 1945. This begins then uh, a long campaign that lasts to the end of the war for control of that island, and in the meantime, You've got some of the largest battles of World War II fought there—at least battles that involve Americans. The Battle of Manila, which is just urban combat on an enormous scale and so tragic, um, for about a month. You've got a uh, really dramatic air and amphibious uh, assault on Corregidor that happens in uh, you know February 1945, and then you've got this terrible, unglamorous slog of just cleaning the Japanese out of every mountain hideout and every ravine and every kind of spot all along the the jungles of Luzon which goes on the rest of the war in the meantime Eichelberger's uh, eighth army under MacArthur uh, basically has all these sort of lightning amphibious landings uh, throughout the central to southern part of the Philippines you know there's about 7,000 islands in the Philippines so um, so Eichelberger's force are doing this sort of quick dash and it's, it's really quite remarkable so it's weird it's like Part of Mark Arthur's command is just in this bogged down uh, attrition battle uh, on Luzon, and part of it is carrying out some of the most innovative, uh, lightning-quick, quite successful amphibious operations in all of human history. So it's kind of all of the above.
0: You mentioned Manila. Is it true that 100,000 civilians died there?
1: Roughly, yeah, exactly. So I, I looked into that, because uh, that's a big part of this book, to the end of the earth, is the Battle of Manila and everything around it, and the different perspectives, American, Filipino, and Japanese. So about 100,000 Filipinos died, and it will never really know the breakdown of what killed whom. Um, so some of them certainly were killed by the firepower, the warring sides. And the Americans had more firepower, so it stands to reason a number of them were killed by U.S. firepower. That's the problem, of course, with urban combat. Uh, But, of course, a number of them, I I would say, you know, perhaps even more troubling, were killed by a deliberate series of Japanese atrocities. When you have basically a doomed force of Japanese defenders, about 17,000 of them, and they're getting orders from their commander, uh, Admiral Iwabuchi, to basically kill all Filipinos. Uh, under the pretext that, well, they're basically just guerrillas for the Americans. So that justifies killing every man, woman, and child. And they're also trying to save ammo as they do it. So they're stabbing people to death. They're packing them inside buildings and burning them, you know, just inside. They're raping people. It's just so horrible on so many levels. And one of the things I was able to find is um, uh, firsthand accounts, diary accounts from some of the perpetrators um, in a, and you get a sense of how they've dehumanized the Filipinos. And in, in the case of one of them, I remember he was talking about how he was a completely different person now than what he had been when he was in Japan, uh, that he couldn't have imagined becoming this way, and he hoped that God and his family could forgive him. And that, that struck me as very real, because there were very few Japanese um, soldiers who left the home islands thinking that they wanted to go and perpetrate atrocities against uh, people somewhere they were very real guys like like you me or anybody else but they became these perpetrators and I, and i think that's the troubling part of the whole thing too so the americans find themselves you know trying to help people uh, but also fight this urban battle in, in the most ruthless way possible with all this firepower it's just such a monumental human tragedy
0: is, is there anything looking back that the americans could have done to get the japanese to be more willing to surrender or was it just ingrained that they were
1: going to fight to the death and the, the japanese soldier was trained and expected to fight to the death so i don't know as much the americans could have done in that regard um i do think that you, you have a kind of a tendency in this war as it unfolds uh kill or be killed um and the americans had had been on the wrong end of enough uh Japanese machinations in which they seemed to surrender and actually were trying to, you right. know, put a grenade at your feet or something. You know that they were very leery and they didn't like the Japanese anyway. And both sides dehumanized the other on a racial basis, and so it was a little bit of a tough sell um, for for me as a as a combat soldier to to really be willing to take a Japanese prisoner and take that chance. But it also could be a force multiplier because. You know if you if you captured enough of them, it, there'd be good intel. Uh, there were there were Japanese American soldiers who were part of these uh all these combat units that were interrogating any POWs you got and also translating documents. Their their contribution to American victory in the Pacific War is just off the charts. Uh so there were some good ways to head with this, but I but I don't think that the Japanese were willing most of the time. And and that was and the Americans could never quite really understand that the why they would be willing to just kind of waste their lives as the americans perceived it you know rather than logically just surrendering because if a japanese soldier could surrender and survive long enough the treatment generally would be pretty good um and that's one of the things the japanese american interrogators were were telling their higher ups is hey you know good treatment leads to good intel results so it's not just the morally right thing to do it's pragmatically the right thing to do and i i think and it's easy for me to say, I guess, but I think we could understand that in the 21st century a little bit better, too, that that good treatment is going to tend to, to probably get you some pretty decent results, at least if the Pacific War, is any kind of scenario to study.
0: And how much did the American soldier understand the danger of going to a Japanese prison camp?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, most of the American soldiers uh, had, had no interest in becoming a POW. Uh, there was... It was pretty well known in the American public, certainly by early 1944, what had happened in the Bataan Death March, um, just how poor the treatment had been. Uh, One of the reasons why MacArthur wants to come back to the Philippines is to liberate American and Filipino POWs who had been captured in 1942. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, almost any American would tell you at that point, I'm not going to surrender. I'm just not going to do it. And, And fortunately for you as a ground soldier, that wasn't going to be really a problem. You know, you're usually on the attack. It's the Japanese who are retreating. I mean, of course, maybe there's odd patrols here and there. With, I mean, of course. But I'm saying en masse, you're not seeing a lot. You would have worried that, about that more as an aviator, certainly, you know, bombing missions over Japan or whatever. But uh, I know, like in the Philippines campaign, I know of very, very few instances um, in which you've got Americans who have to make that choice or actually end up in captivity. Most mm-hmm. of the time, the Japanese would have just get killed them anyway. Uh, One thing that's really helping you, too, in the Philippines, I should mention, is the Filipino guerrillas who are fighting alongside the Americans and are another kind of force multiplier and a real headache for the Japanese to deal with. So that's another reason why you almost certainly weren't going to become a POW because you had locals to help you as well.
0: Mm, Okay. I hadn't thought about that perspective of that they're not going to. That's a good point. I'm thinking of the, um, oh, gosh, who's the guy? I wrote the book unbreakable or whatever it is um oh unbroken yeah
1: louis amperini louis Amperino. <laughs> terrific book yeah you think about of course that he's story. an aviator you know and so that's so that in his case but it, yeah. i mean his odyssey is unreal because yeah. he's lucky to just survive at sea for so long and then is captured of course and all the rest of it but yeah you don't want to go through that experience i mean yeah so you can make absolutely. a movie out of him just being at sea
0: Easily. that's not even the bad
1: absolutely one. <laughs> right if he had never been captured it'd be an incredible movie i know
0: right yeah and so that that's what got me thinking about going you know knowing what he went through i could see if you're a soldier on the front lines you know not understanding that that's just oh that'd be a tough yeah killer be killed and the the frustration as the war goes on from the u.s perspective has to be um going back to this this concept of fighting for your humanity is seeing how the japanese are are doing things how they are killing civilians, how they are mutilating bodies, how they won't surrender and, and and just that toll it can take and you know not trying to cast judgment or excuse, just being practical just the the toll it would take on someone um over the course of many many campaigns yeah it's got to be it has to be tough at that point in the war in nineteen forty five to to be a human
1: it is it's such a heart of darkness thing. And and the other thing that's easy to forget, all these years later, you know, let's say you survive Okinawa, and that's been one hellacious battle. Of course, it's you know you probably think you have the invasion of Japan ahead of you. Right. How in the world are you going to survive that? You know, and how, so I, I don't know that if if you know if you and I are on the ground as soldiers at that point, I don't know that our main priority is is the moral side. It's just surviving this thing somehow. Now, to be sure, we're not going to go out and commit war crimes just for the sake of doing it. But if it's a, you know, if it's a 50-50 call, whether to take this guy prisoner, uh, you know, or whether to keep things secure for ourselves, I mean, you know which way this is going to go. And I think we'd all understand that. That's just the way the war had been. Um, But, you know, the incredible thing to me was then how quickly that began to flip once you have the end of the war. Um, At Okinawa, you see about seventy-four hundred Japanese military personnel taken prisoner, and that was an enormous haul. Considering on the eve of the battle, the U.S. had in custody something in the order of about maybe thirty-five hundred to four thousand Japanese POWs from the whole war. Wow. wow! And you, you know, you double that just at Okinawa. Then, of course, once you know you see the, the war peter to an end, um, you know, in the summer nineteen forty-five, you got thousands of guys you're you're taking prisoner in the Philippines once they surrender. Uh, much less all these other places where you're going to be too. And so it, it, the war goes from no surrender to all of a sudden mass surrender, you know, post VJ day. Uh, but even a little bit before that, in the case of Okinawa, that was a little bit of a harbinger that not all Japanese were going to, you know, sacrifice themselves at the end.
0: At what point did Mark MacArthur understand that we were going to bomb Japan?
1: With uh, the atomic bomb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he doesn't really know about it until it happens. And that's the other thing that's amazing. Um, I mean, MacArthur had little inkling of the Manhattan Project. I mean, had no real knowledge of it. And, uh, of course, he gets the news along with everybody else on August 6, 1945, uh, of exactly what's happened. And then, of course, three days later, the, the Nagasaki bombing Um What's interesting to me is he will sort of excoriate that decision a little bit later in life, saying, you know, the, the bombings were unnecessary and all this kind of stuff. Um, and yet and, and yet within a few years, this is the same guy who wants to use atomic weapons and radioactive waste in order to stop the Chinese from getting into Korea during the, during the Korean War. So, again, the, the contrast of MacArthur. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what's so interesting, too. Here's this high and mighty MacArthur uh, and Nimitz, too, by the way. I mean, they're high up, but even they don't really know the full scale of the Manhattan Project until this whole thing happens.
0: Why was MacArthur chosen to be the one to continue in Japan?
1: Yeah, so this was a, a hard-fought compromise between the Army and the Navy, and sort of the Army Air Forces on the on the, the fringes of it. Um, they had they had learned to live together throughout the Pacific War to kind of coexist with these two uh competing theaters you know moving towards the philippines and towards japan and of course the other thing too, remember is that you know you've got a major theater in in china burma india as well so how's that going to be factored in well as they're working this out at the sort of pentagon level and even the white house level it becomes very clear that um you just simply aren't going to have um a naval commander was going to be competent to, to command those ground forces once they land, and vice versa. And so in the course of the war, in most invasions, the Army and the Navy and also the Marines of the Navy had worked out this sort of informal kind of agreement, you know, before we land, the naval commander is in charge. Once our boots hit the ground, now we got our own independent thing going on, happening on the land battle and don't mess with us. We run that. And so you see something of the same kind of compromise. And I think MacArthur is the obvious person because there's no army commander of, of commensurate or u- equivalent rank for an for a, uh, invasion of that size who would be available. And he's also kind of earned this too. He's also got some really terrific commanders under him. You know, Walter Kruger commanding his sixth army. You know, but especially, you know, Robert Eichelberger commanding his Eighth Army. I believe personally that Eichelberger is probably the best American ground commander at that level in the war, whom most of us have never heard of all these years later. And it's precisely sort of the way MacArthur wanted it. Um, so this was going to be the first team, and then you were also going to have the First Army redeployed from Europe. Uh, so you know, MacArthur has a has five star rank; he has seniority over everybody. It really is. It's kind of obvious. And he knows a lot about amphibious operations by this point, too. He, he's done it a lot.
0: Okay, if you could go back and ask anyone from this period a question,
1: and they're going to answer it honestly, who would you go ask and what would you ask them? Yeah, I mean, referring to our earlier discussion, I think I'd probably go and ask Chester Nimitz why he went ahead with the, the Peleliu. Uh, battle because nimitz had this great edict and he even kept a little like placard on his desk uh, to the effect of and i'm kind of paraphrasing you know is is this invasion worth it is is this island we're taking going to be worth it is you know do we really have to have this can we live without it that kind of thing and nimitz was very good at that you know there's a lot of islands out there in the pacific that he could have invaded and didn't and i think we'd all agree his island hopping campaign worked out pretty well so why was Palau different why did he go forward with it? Why didn't he quite see what Halsey was telling him? Halsey, who tended to be kind of overaggressive, is for once telling him, actually, we don't need to invade. We, we can scale this down. I don't know why that didn't get his attention more. And, uh, and I, wouldn't, I, really, I wouldn't really ask Nimitz that from a critical perspective, more from a curious perspective, because I know how tough it was to make that decision, especially sitting in Pearl Harbor, you know, far away from it, um, I, I think it's amazing how good his decision-making tended to be, but this was one that, that didn't work out. So maybe that's why we focus in on it.
0: Okay. The book is coming out on, I think you said it would May 2nd, May 3rd, May 2nd, May 2nd this year. I always ask if you've got upcoming projects coming out, but since this one's so far out, <laughs> I suspect, I suspect <laughs> you don't have an upcoming project on the books, but I'm going to ask anyways, do you have any future projects you're working on?
1: Well, this one has kept me busy for the better part of a decade or more, Um, and in that sense, it's really hard to believe that it's ending, Uh, although I'd like to believe maybe it'll never end, I suppose, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm pretty deep into research on a a subsequent project, uh, a biography of, of General Ridgway, Matthew Ridgway, who I think is maybe outside of Eisenhower, Marshall, possibly MacArthur, the most important general, U.S. general of the 20th century. He's, he's, so fascinating on so many levels. And I don't think that he's ever been covered the way he ought to be. So I'm going to, I'm going to basically give a, an entire, you know, biography of his whole life because it's it's just fascinating.
0: Okay. Well, we will look forward to that. Obviously we'll link to all the trilogy in the show notes for listeners to check out. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me on Ryan. Really enjoyed it.
0: Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.